Funding for Think comes from SMU Master of Liberal Studies. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. Would you eat food grown from a seed that could not occur in nature? Is it even possible to know when that's the case? Scientists have not yet reached a consensus on whether genetically modified organisms or GMOs are safe for long-term human consumption or not. In the meantime, many Americans say they would like these foods labeled as such so that consumers have the choice to accept or reject them. But as my guest today can tell us, proposed labeling laws have largely shriveled on the vine in the face of lobbying efforts by big agriculture companies with a financial interest in selling both GMO seeds and the chemical products they are designed to work with. Jeremy Seifert is director of the new documentary GMO ONG. There's a screening of it scheduled for this coming Sunday, September 29th at 5 at the Texas Theater in Oak Cliff. Jeremy, welcome to Think. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You tell us at the outset that you didn't pay a lot of attention to the food you were eating until you had children, and suddenly you have this huge sense of responsibility for their well-being. That's right. Um, I mean, when you're responsible for a little innocent child, <laughs> you know, things, things change drastically. And with the GMO issue, even with children, I still wasn't paying attention and wasn't aware of it. It was this article that came out of Haiti about rural farmers marching in the streets against Monsanto that first really awakened me to the, the issue. Yeah, so what happened was after the earthquake, farmers there obviously were in very dire straits, but they mobilized against an offer of 475 tons of uh, GMO seed for free to the extent that they were even like writing songs about Monsanto. Let's listen to that. So obviously, Jeremy, even for folks who don't speak French, they can hear the word Monsanto. Can you give us a rough translation of what they're singing about there? Yeah, they're basically saying, stop Monsanto, kick them out of the country, and they're saying, you know, peasants of the West. The peasant is a term of really used around the world for a poor rural farmer. Um, they're saying peasants of the West, East, North, and South gather together, kick them out, and then and the song says, Monsanto is poisoning the air, the water, the soil, and our health. Um, and, you know, I was confused about the seeds, uh, like I think so many are. You know, the seeds that are... Monsanto originally donated to Haiti were actually hybrid seeds, and hybrid is through traditional breeding. So they weren't GMOs, but the same thing occurs when they give those seeds as a gift. Then the following year, uh, hybrid seeds don't save well, so they have to go back to Monsanto and buy them. And then in you know a couple years, Monsanto would most likely say, well, here's what you really need, these GMOs. And they come with the Roundup herbicide that we also make because they're Roundup ready. And these seeds don't really grow well in your soil because they're not from that area and region of the world. So you need all these heavy inputs, these synthetic fertilizers. And then begins the cycle of debt. And in the meantime, 
the people of that region of Haiti would lose their own native and indigenous seeds. And they would lose something, a, a term that more and more people are becoming familiar with, uh, they would lose their food sovereignty, which means that the, the food is controlled by the people rather than politicians and corporations. One surprising revelation of this film, Jeremy, is how many people don't really know what GMOs are. I want to go back to that. There are two basic categories, plants altered to produce pesticide and plants altered to resist herbicide. Can you talk about how they work? Yeah, so this is, you know, a product of the advent of biotechnology. This came, you know, shortly after the discovery of the double helix of DNA about 60 years ago, and then biotechnology really, um, you know, became more widely used, and then it became applied to specifically crops. And what's happening with a genetically modified organism is what's never happened in the millions upon millions of years of evolution, uh, is that they're taking a gene from one organism and putting it into the DNA of of a totally different organism. So, for example, the Flavor Saver tomato in the mid-90s, they took a gene from a flounder and inserted it into the DNA of a tomato to make it uh, hopefully have a longer shelf life. And that Flavor Saver was not commercially successful and was pulled off the, the shelves. So, But the two basic GMOs now um, that are grown mainly in soy, corn, cotton, and canola are either Roundup-resistant, so the soy plant can be doused with Roundup, and Roundup kills every living plant except for that soy plant. It can bathe in it and be fine. Uh, and then the other is uh, it produces a BT toxin. So in every cell of the plant, it produces this BT toxin that's been engineered into the plant, and when the insect munches on it, it kills it. So uh, to be clear, because I think there's also some confusion, people say, well, you know, you had Gregor Mendel crossing pea plants a very long time ago. Um, when you say that, that a gene is introduced from a different organism, it might be like from an animal and not another vegetable. This is not, the, this is not a matter of, of allowing plants to cross-pollinate. Exactly. This is something completely new and different from any type of traditional breeding or hybridization or even, you know, the tangelo or a seedless watermelon those are all achieved through natural breeding and usually, uh, you know, just within the melon family, so in the same species or the tomato family. Um, so what's happening with GMOs is something that has only been possible in recent years, and that's why they've only been on the market for 15 years in this country. So there are people, Jeremy, who say, well, just because it's new doesn't mean it's dangerous. And, and then there are, uh, honestly, people who are worried about GMOs. There are two things potentially to worry about. There's eating the, the plant itself that has been altered in some way. And for many people, it seems the greater worry is eating a plant that has been exposed to large amounts of, of pesticides. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, th- this... The reason the film was somewhat difficult to make is because once you start talking about GMOs, what you're really talking about, this is an entryway into talking about <laughs> all of uh, food and life. And it, it, it's a way into talking about our current food system uh, and corporations 
And then you have to talk about health and health risks. You have to talk about the environment and environmental impact of this new type of food and, in, and also the environmental impact of our current agricultural system. And then you have to talk about herbicides and pesticides. So it's kind of endless. And one of the guys, uh, a farmer I talked to in Ohio, Don Grimes, who's a seed dealer, uh, he deals GMOs, he works with the Amish, um, you know, he, he's got no problem with the genetic modification of the seed from his perspective, and he's not a scientist. Uh, he's kind of been told what the industry tells their farmers, but his concern, he says in the film, is what they're putting on those crops. And, you know, the figure for pesticides in the U.S. right now is uh, just over 5 billion pounds sprayed each year. And then Roundup, of course, is the most widely used herbicide in the world has, and has recently been found in human urine. So it means we're eating this stuff. Right. There's residue on, on our food, for sure. Why is it so hard to tease out whether those residues that get into our bodies might be bad for us? Well, I just, uh, for many reasons. One, the, the testing really isn't there. Um, we're just sort of I mean, we're moving so quickly in our quote-unquote progress um, that we need to slow down and take time and um, proceed with caution. So in many cases, the testing isn't there. I mean, you've, of course, heard of flame retardant showing up in breast milk, uh, I'm sure, and many other chemicals. um, I mean, we are just in this country saturated in chemicals, and so many of them are pushed through quickly, uh, and then it takes some, usually consumers, and some sickness or some professor who happens to do a study, and then those companies, um, they've already made their millions or even billions, and then, you know, that particular chemical or pesticide or herbicide is pulled from the market. So it's hard to trace it back to any one thing, and it's also hard to trace um, all these spike in, in sicknesses to any one thing or to GMOs because we have so many inputs uh, and negative inputs. And the only way, if you live in America and you eat sort of regular food, the only way to avoid GMOs for sure is to eat organic food? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a real simple and easy way. I mean, organic by its very definition means not genetically modified. It also means no toxic herbicides or pesticides or synthetic fertilizers. So that's, that's one way. I mean, on the other hand, you know, there's really only a, a handful of GMOs out in the world. Unfortunately, the soy and corn make their way into almost everything and are behind most of the meat and dairy in this country. But, you know, blueberries, for example aren't genetically modified. So you could buy conventional blueberries and still be avoiding GMOs, but you would not be avoiding the pesticides and herbicides sprayed on a conventional blueberry. So what are your thoughts on organic farming? I think organics is a choice, and and, and I think organics are a good thing. However, the fact of the matter is organic farmers per acre are not going to produce as much as a commercial farmer is going to that uses all the science that's available. I feel an obligation to not just the United States but to the whole world 
where there's a billion people that live on less than a dollar a day. So if we all planted organic, and let's say we cut our production by 25%, what are you going to tell those billion people? You can't eat. So that's why I choose to use GMO seeds or herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. Now, and at a certain point, you have to trust our regulators and our scientists. I think they're good people. And we do have, uh, you know, a safe and abundant food supply. That is a clip from filmmaker Jeremy Seifert's new film, GMO OMG. The documentary will screen at the Texas Theater in Oak Cliff on Sunday at 5 o'clock. Um, so, Jeremy, that is a cut from the film sort of illustrating the point that you were making earlier, that, that there are certain farmers who feel like there's no reason not to trust this stuff um, and, and that their yields have improved since they've started using GMO foods or GMO seeds. Yeah, there's so much to unpack in that clip. And Bill Beam, the farmer speaking, is an incredible guy. He's, you know, salt to the earth, gentle, kind soul. Um, so it was fun hanging out with him and just listening to him. Um, you know, there's so much going on in that clip, and, and so much of it is sort of the uh, industry speak that you hear or see the advertisements. And one of those is that there's increased yield. And while that was true for a brief moment with GMOs, now there's something called yield lag, where they're actually falling off and traditionally bred conventional crops are producing, outproducing many GMOs at this point. So that's not really um, a benefit of GMOs. I think the other thing... You know, let me, let me jump in because we have to take a quick break. I'll, I want you to finish your point. My guest is filmmaker Jeremy Seifert. He directed the new documentary GMO OMG, which will screen this Sunday, September 29th at 5 at the Texas Theater. If you'd like to join our conversation, call us at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program, accepting applications for this January to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu slash mls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is filmmaker Jeremy Seifert. He directed the new documentary GMO OMG, which will screen at the Texas Theater in Oak Cliff this coming Sunday, September 29th at 5 o'clock. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can email think at kera.org or call us at 1-800-933-5372. So, Jeremy, before the break, you were telling us about this phenomenon of yield lag, which seems to be a problem with uh, some GMO crops, and, and then there was more to it than that. Yeah, it goes beyond that. I mean, if you're discussing the argument that we need GMOs to feed the world, um, I think, you know, beyond looking at yield lag and the fact that conventional crops can produce uh, as much or more than GMOs, it's important that, to know that, you know, in that same state where Bill Beam, the farmer, was, we went and talked to Rodale, 
and learned about their 30-year-long farming systems trial. This is a peer-reviewed, highly scientific study, and what they found over the course of 30 years is that organic can have equivalent yields to conventional and GMO. And that's significant because organic does that without synthetic fertilizers, which we've reached sort of the peak of many of those fertilizers because they're, they're joined with oil or natural gas, uh, which is then, of course, connected to fracking. Um, but they also outperformed conventional and GMO in, in years of flood or drought because organic farming is all about the soil and soil management. And the same thing has been happening in the EU, which has largely rejected GMOs. Although it's conventional, which means chemical, they're um, outperforming our farmers because of their attention to soil management. So I think that's an important fact to put into the mix when we talk about feeding the world. And I think beyond that, we really have to look at the GMOs being grown in this country and what they're going to. You have, I think it's upwards of 20% of corn going to ethanol production, which we could have a whole hour-long discussion on that and if whether or not that's really effective or a good use of our resources. And then we have much of corn and soy going into some of the worst food the world has ever eaten, which is all of our soda pop, all of the, the chips, and, and then the meat industry, which is a very sick and broken industry um, requiring tons of hormones and antibiotics and causing great pollution and hurting our health because we're eating over 200 pounds of meat per person per year in this country. So, you know, that's, we're not really going to feed the world genetically modified high fructose corn syrup um, and, and I think beyond that, the larger question is, should we be feeding the world or should we be helping the world feed itself, supporting them in their place, in their situation, and um, giving them the tools they need to, to better feed themselves? And GMOs are not the, the answer. The main things they say about the reason we need them and this biotech and industrial ag is to feed the world. Can we feed the world like I need this? to sit down and tell you about how angry I get when they say they're going to feed the world. You know, that's just, I don't know if, if uh, uh, GMO grains are better or worse for you, or healthy or not healthy. I don't know, don't know anybody who does know, but that's not the point to me. These people are trying to patent nature, they're trying to patent all the, you know, Nature, really. They own it. Talk about that perspective, if you will, Jeremy. That's another cut from Jeremy Seifert's new documentary, GMO OMG. Yeah, that's Gene Logsdon. Um, he's an amazing uh, farmer and writer. He's written many books, including The Contrary Farmer. Um, yeah, that perspective, um, it's, that's a long conversation as well about patenting and the patenting of life. Um, and an interesting factoid on that front is that Clarence Thomas, who has or had ties to Monsanto back in the day, was the um, judge in the Supreme Court who wrote the ruling on the latest um, you know, patenting of life laws. 
Um, so for 10,000 years plus, we have saved seeds and shared seeds and selected the best seeds, and that's how we have all these amazing foods and corn that's not just the size of a thumb, and also how we have hundreds and hundreds of varieties of corn or tomato and, and all this diversity. And each, each of those um, varieties has different traits. And some of them are just flavor and look, but some of them are really important for drought tolerance, um, flood tolerance, you know, different vitamins, et cetera, et cetera. So this is how we are sort of alive. This is the biodiversity that we have inherited from the last you know, thousands of years. And what's happened in the last hundred years, not just with GMOs, but first with hybrids, is that farmers really, by and large, stopped saving seeds. And they started trusting the companies to provide them with seeds, which were sort of bigger, faster, stronger um, seeds. And what's happened with GMOs is that because they have been genetically engineered in a laboratory, they're very easy to trace. So the company can have a much stronger patent and enforce that patent more easily. So the patenting of, of seeds and what Gene Logsdon was talking about, these guys are trying to own life and own nature. It's true. They own not only the seed, but when that seed grows into the plant, they somehow also own that plant because their patent is, is the whole plant. It's the, the DNA within it. And then the seeds that come from that plant are also owned by the company. So if a farmer saves those seeds, and some farmers have, Monsanto has a history of going after them and suing them and being successful in suing them. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Mike in Garland. Hi, Mike. Hello. Hi. Go right uh, ahead, please. I would like to uh, address the issue of some of the potential changes coming down the road in genetic changes. For example, legumes fix their own nitrogen and taking that property and putting that with other crops like your wheat and your corn. Uh, sunflowers have a fantastic taproot that can go down six feet and taking that uh, capability and fixing it over to, say, wheat and corn, taking the annual part of the crop and making it perennial so you plant it once and you just come back year after year to harvest it rather than having the cost of constantly replanting it. And so much of the world's soil is not uh, cultivatable because it's too high in salt. Well, they have discovered like a tomato plant growing in a salt spray, and they take the gene that allows that plant to do that and cross it over into conventional crops and so much of the world's land could be cropped that currently is not uh, able to be cropped because the salt content's too high. Well, Jeremy, what do you think about that sort of thing? Yeah, I think those are really interesting um, points. Um, none of those things are currently happening or being grown. That's the potential that is sort of put out there by the industry to make it look really amazing. Um, I think. I think it's okay and good to talk about that potential. And I've never said and don't say in the film, I am against any and all GMOs, whatever shape or form they might be. I'm more talking about what's currently happening and what's on the ground and the fact that chemical companies are essentially feeding us. Um, you know, 
the golden rice issue could be brought up. Um, there's been so much hype around that, and, and it's being sort of used as a weapon um, <laughs> in many ways as well. Excuse me for interrupting. Um, that, that's rice that's enhanced with vitamin A. Is that right? Right, which was a big deal. You know, they brought it up a decade ago, but at that point you would have to eat, I think it was 20 pounds of it to get the vitamin A. And now they've finally refined it and gotten to a point where, you know, within, I think, just a cup of rice, and yet it's the wrong variety. It's a Japonica variety, and in Southeast Asia and Philippines they grow indica, which grows in a completely different environment. So they still haven't made that leap. And, again, it's like, that would be wonderful. Uh, in the meantime, vitamin A deficiency was 40% of children under the age of 5 10 years ago. Now it's only 15% of children. So it's already being solved even though the golden rice isn't in place. And I think you know, that's addressing the deeper issue, which is poverty, which means that if they're only eating rice, should we just make the rice golden or should we help them balance their diet and have the nutrition they need from a variety of fruits and vegetables? And to the, the guy's point who just called, I think there is some amazing potential there. I believe that there is more amazing and lasting uh, and more robust change possible through gene mapping and traditional breeding, which is different from uh, genetic engineering and the current GMOs we see. And also, the farm itself should be a place of biodiversity, not a monoculture. So I've talked to amazing farmers who are doing essentially what the caller just said, that legumes fix nitrogen into the soil. Well, they're growing legumes like soy in and among the corn so that the soy fixes nitrogen into the soil for the corn, which feeds on that nitrogen, or growing pole beans up around sunflowers. Um, and the farm itself should be this rich, biodiverse place. And I think we haven't really tapped into what is already there. And, and learn from nature and learn from, uh, you know, what millions and millions of years uh, have given us if we will just only kind of sit and listen and learn from, from what's happening. And that isn't to say that we would reject science or technology. I think we embrace them both. It's how we use them. And I think in many ways they have been misused or misappropriated. You went to the Svalbard Seed Bank. Talk about what that experience was like and, and, and what it left you with, having been there. Yeah, well, I had never thought of seeds in this way. I, I'd never really thought about seeds before uh, making this film. And really, before I started the film, my son, Finn, um, became obsessed with seeds. We planted a garden, and he saw that miracle of life. And because of his love for seeds, I started becoming interested in them. But when I read about the Svalbard Seed Vault, it was just one more step to think about how precious seeds are and how neglected they have been. And like one of the people I interviewed who didn't make it into the film was Claire Hope Cummings. And, you know, she said in her piece, the, the plight of seeds are one of the most important environmental issues of our time, of all time. And yet, there's something that none of us pay attention to. And, and the fact that that Svalbard seed vault exists, it just, to me, needed to be in the film as well to, um, I don't know, enter into the imagination and sense of awe and wonder of the viewer that, 
Now, this isn't a vault for gold or rubies or jewels. Um, it's a vault for seeds uh, because we have lost in this country, in the last 100 years, we've lost upwards of 90% of the varieties of our crops, and that's because of the modernization of agriculture. Um, and we'll never get those back. Um, but we can preserve what is there. And uh, the seed vault is great. It's more, uh, it's a backup copy of the seeds of the world. What needs to happen is on the ground. Seeds and that diversity need to be planted and grown and shared, and that's how they grow um, in relationship with the environment and, and gain the traits that we need for survival. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go next on the phone to Grace in Dallas. Hi, Grace. Hi, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, your work is greatly appreciated. And quickly, if I may, to your golden rice discussion, and also in regard to seeds too, in developing nations where you have discussions about, you know, food shortages and you're importing great, you know, quantities of seed or products, agricultural products, there are discussions on the back end about political decisions, contracts, the Monsanto, you know, land grab situation. And then there are discussions like what we're talking about today that are, you know, health-centered, wellness, you know, that, that conversation. And I think until those two sides begin to interact, no one's going to understand the golden rice thing. It's, it's, it's too much and it's way involved. Um, yeah. my, my question today, it really wasn't a question, I'm a small urban uh, gardener, and I'm vegan, and the permaculture community is we're invisible fringe people. We run into each other, I guess, at Whole Foods, Home Depot, Lowe's. We order compost, and we exist, but there is more of a camaraderie in Austin and other places, even New York. But if I need information, I can find more in Haiti from beekeepers and documents done by World Bank about uh, UN programs for that. Could you just talk about what is happening uh, that you know of with permaculture coming into this conversation in urban areas? Yeah, I wish I could speak at length on that, um, but I can't. I'm, I'm definitely not um, a permaculturist myself, and I don't. I mean, you would probably be a better person to inform us on on what's happening with that. I, I know that it's a burgeoning area and and, and so vital and important that we grow some of our own food, and especially that uh, cities grow um, some of their own food. So they're not completely dependent on food coming from hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away. Um, there's some amazing stuff happening in Los Angeles, which, um, as well it should, it's a huge landmass, and it's also uh, perfect weather year-round. So um, there's really some, some fantastic stuff happening, like the Ron Finley Project and others. But for permaculture um, specifically, I wish I could speak to that more. My guest is filmmaker Jeremy Seifert, director of the new documentary GMO-OMG. A screening will take place at the Texas Theater in Oak Cliff this coming Sunday, September 29th at 5 o'clock. If you'd like to uh, jump into our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org.
Funding for Think comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program, accepting applications for this January to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu MLS. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with director Jeremy Seifert. His new documentary, GMO OMG, will be screened at the Texas Theater on Sunday, September 29th at 5 o'clock. If you want to join us, call 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. So, Jeremy, just to be clear... Um, you know, Dow and DuPont and Monsanto have this sort of hold on American farmers, but there is nothing to stop those farmers from starting with heirloom seeds, saving their own seeds from year to year, um, choosing to not use the chemicals that are sold by these companies. Why do so many farmers feel like they have to do it this way in order to survive? That's a great question, and I wish I could delve into the history of farming in, in that much depth. I mean, you know... Farmers are not just one homogenous people group or something. You know, each farmer is a unique individual with uh, his or her own unique situation. Uh, But, yeah, by and large, the thrust of modern agriculture after World War II and with all these leftover chemicals from the war going into farming, whether they be synthetic um, fertilizers or the herbicides and pesticides, um, there was a big push. And in the 70s, Earl Butts um, had the mantra, get big or get out. Uh, And that happened by and large. And now we have fewer farmers than prisoners. And that says something about both institutions, I think, the fact that we have that many prisoners or that few farmers. Um, You know, there was also something uh, called drift that happened when say one farmer would accept GMOs, and those GMOs were Roundup-ready. Um, so no longer did that farmer have to worry about spraying Roundup all over his entire field because it wouldn't kill his crop. It would just kill all the weeds. So there was an exorbitant amount of this herbicide being sprayed, uh, an increase of 527 million pounds over the last um, decade, I believe, um, so then what would happen is that herbicide would drift onto the neighbor's field through the air and kill part, if not all, of, of his or her crop. So then that was one way that farmers that were near farmers growing GMOs sort of accepted that technology. Um, so there, there are many reasons. And, I mean, of course, this, like I said, farmers starting back probably 80, 90 years ago started getting their seeds more and more from companies um, because they were, they were hybrid varieties and they stopped saving as many of their seeds or of these particular crops that are, have become the big, huge staple crops in this country. So the the jury scientifically is still out. It may turn out that GMO foods and the associated chemicals are bad for human beings as consumed in a normal American diet. It may turn out that they're not bad for us. In the meantime, though, a lot of people say, let me just know what I'm eating. Why has that not happened in this country when um, it is common in Europe? A lot of these foods are, are banned in other parts of the world. Yeah, so we have... 64 countries around the world, including countries like China, Russia, Syria, that have labeling of GMOs, and yet we don't have them in this country, which (laughs) doesn't seem to make much sense. Um, 
You know, one of the reasons is when GMOs first came on the market in Europe, they really had um, lots of coverage in the media, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of articles written about this new food uh, created by these giant agrochemical companies, and they really had a conversation and discussed whether or not this is what they wanted and also discussed uh, whether or not they should be labeled. And they demanded labeling, the people did, and that's what they got. And in many cases, the companies from our country simply changed the ingredient. So instead of high fructose corn syrup, they just use sugar, which isn't genetically modified. Of course, beet sugar is genetically modified. But uh, anyway, so they just changed the recipe so they wouldn't have to label because I think they knew that if people had a choice, they would choose um, the non-GMO product. Um, so by and large, in the United States, we have not had this conversation. And one of the reasons we haven't had it is that most people out there don't know that they're eating GMOs and don't know what a GMO is. Uh, and part of that is because they're not labeled. Um, so it, a couple years back in California for Prop 37, uh, or was that, I guess that was a year ago. I'm losing track of time. Um, you know, the last 30 days of Prop 37, the industries, and this includes biotech companies, but it also includes companies like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, were spending a million dollars a day to defeat Proposition 37. And they won by a very narrow margin. Now we have on the table I-522 in Washington State. They'll vote in November for their right to know and their right to choose. And just two weeks ago, Monsanto dumped in $4.5 million and a handful of other biotech companies um, pooled together, I think, 4 or $5 million. And that's just the beginning uh, because that vote is still a ways out. Would it be sort of onerous on not just um, food producers at the farm level, but, but on people who process food, who package it and ship it, would it be particularly hard for them to get this labeling done if that were required? No, absolutely not, because the, the burden currently is placed on organic farmers to become USDA certified, um, to transition from conventional or chemical farming to organic takes three years. And that's one of the reasons why many farmers don't transition to organic, because in that three-year period, they would go under. Um, but the burden is placed on organic to prove and show that this is sort of, quote-unquote, clean food, not using GMOs, not using um, toxic herbicides and pesticides. Um, while, on the other hand, the chemical food, which... <laughs> Uh, may be very detrimental to our health, doesn't require any special labeling. Um, so, no, I don't think that there would be an undue burden on them to label it. And really, the, the onus would be on the companies um, selling the product to the people. So, you know, if Coca-Cola sources all of its corn syrup from these, you know, few companies and they all produce GMO corn, well, then it's really on Coca-Cola or Pepsi to put genetically modified corn syrup. And companies change their packaging every year, sometimes twice a year, and they don't put that cost on consumers. They, they take that cost onto themselves. We've heard from a number of people, Jeremy, who may not make it out to the screening on Sunday, but do you want to see the film? Is there, is there a DVD release plan for the future, or will this be released wide around the country? 
What our current plan is, is um, this theatrical release. We started in New York two weeks ago. Our opening weekend in L.A. was last weekend, and it opens in Seattle on Friday. And basically, however well the film does in those three cities in their first week or two, um, that will determine how far and wide the film spreads across the country. So essentially, if people know and care about this issue or if they're just curious to see this film, they need to go out and see it in the theater if it's near them in those cities, and then it will spread. And then, of course, we'll be releasing it on DVD and um, Netflix and iTunes and things like that uh, much later this year, I hope. We don't have solid plans for that. We'll kind of see how this all plays out. Were you surprised that you couldn't get anyone from the seed or chemical companies to talk to you, given that, I mean, even based on, on uh, calls and emails that we've had here, they have made a case for themselves, whether everyone accepts that that case is correct. They, they seem to have plenty of, of material that would suggest that they have a valid argument. So why wouldn't they talk to you? I'm not quite sure, because I attempted so many times and left so many messages um, and I also attempted with professors uh, who are on sort of the pro-GMO side of things, um, like Pamela Ronald at UC Davis and others at Berkeley, and was also refused interviews, even when I said, I will show you the film and your part in the film, and you can have the final word, which a documentarian never does. Uh, you know, you get waivers signed, and it's a, it's a release. Um, so even then, they, they wouldn't participate. And, you know, when I went to that particular Monsanto facility, um, not only was it strange that they knew who I was right when I walked in and somebody was on the phone waiting for me, but I didn't walk in there with a big camera over my shoulder or behind me. Um, I walked in there just as a regular person. I mean, we literally drove up, parked, and I walked in, and I had a lav mic under my shirt that you couldn't see. But even then, just asking the very simple question as, as a father... I can't escape your food. It's in everything. You're essentially feeding my children. I want to know that it's safe. I want you to talk to me about it and, and show me how and why it's safe. Um, and they just essentially kicked me out. So I was, I was a little surprised by that. You include a scene in the film. You have three kids, um, and you include a scene where they're they're eating this delicious like chocolate ice cream, and and you try to point out to them, yes, but this is genetically modified, and they they don't care, right? They want the ice cream. Um, how hard is it in practice, like in in real family life, to try and and keep their diets pure to the extent that you think they need to be? It's it's very difficult. I mean, we live in a country where the status quo is. GMO, conventional, chemical. Organic is growing, uh, but it's still niche. And because of that, um, it's much more expensive because it's, it's made that way almost intentionally by the food and farming policies in this country. Most of our food is made falsely cheap by the, the farm bill and tax subsidies. Um, you know, that scene in the film, too, we were just... That was really early on in making the film. And at the time, I really thought, okay, this is Breyer's all-natural. The ingredient was sugar, not you know, high-fructose corn syrup. Um, and it was kind of as they were eating it and as I was filming them that I was kind of asking those questions like, oh, I guess if the milk isn't organic, it comes from cows that ate GMOs and maybe RBGH, 
the growth hormone that's genetically engineered and, oh, the sugar could be genetically modified sugar beets. And, yeah, my son, Scout, they were both eating it. And he said, well, it's not making me dead yet. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, it's it's difficult. In our home, we're probably 99% organic. And to afford that, we buy more and more foods in bulk. And we do, you know, I, I don't do I can't take credit for the cooking, but my wife, Jen, uh, we uh, do a lot of our own cooking. And, and no, we have a, a garden, and it's getting bigger and bigger each year um, because Finn uh, is so in love with it and makes me get out there and, and work. So, but it, when we're on the road and traveling and going out, it's, it's much more difficult. So we've, we've tried to strike a balance to not ostracize ourselves from friends and family um certain you know situations um so it's it's a struggle it's still difficult and it's it's you know for me it's beyond uh the potential health risks i think there are and so the precautionary principle says wait rather than jam it down your children's throats but for me it's it's beyond that it's i have a problem with giant corporations and chemical companies and a centralized system um, controlling food and seed, and I don't want with my purchases and my meals to support that system. I'd like to support a system of decentralized, local, organic, regenerating soil and healthy for people and the planet. Does it bother you that, at least in this country, worrying about the presence of GMOs is sort of a, and I don't want to call it a luxury problem, but if you're having trouble getting food on the table, period, um, you're not in any position to think about whether food is GMO or not? Yeah, that's a difficult place to be. And, you know, speaking of which, we throw away about 40% of the food in this country, mm-hmm. um, which is a sad fact in the face of hunger, and it's also a, a damning fact in the face of the company's saying we need this food to, to feed the world while culturally we're throwing away so much. But I think, you know, more and more we're waking up to the fact that food is the most intimate interaction we have with the world around us. Food is our health. And even in poor, uh, poor counties and areas where there are essentially food deserts, and you're right, that food that is given uh, might be genetically modified or have those ingredients in it. But People are starting to connect with local food culture and programs and CSAs and farmers. And if that grows more and more, then, you know, even people who lack and who are needy should and will have access to healthy food because they need, need nutrition, not just quantity like a Big Mac. Filmmaker Jeremy Seifert directed the new documentary, GMO-OMG. There's a screening scheduled for this coming Sunday, September 29th at 5 o'clock at the Texas Theater in Oak Cliff. Jeremy, I really appreciate you making time for us this hour. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Today's show was engineered by Shelley Canavy. Our podcast is produced by Christine McConnell. We had Stephen Becker and Christina Martinez with us in studio today. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. You can learn more about the show, find out about upcoming programs, and download the podcast free at kera.org think. We always welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. You can email them to think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.